Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Phil Kramer, and Phil is a fellow coos deer nut, and um, I'm a sponsor over on the cooswhitetail.com website, and I always enjoy seeing uh, Phil's content, and uh, it's always nice to talk to a fellow coos deer nut, and today we're going to be talking about coos deer hunting in Sonora, Mexico, and I've had some feedback from you guys, the listeners, that you'd like to hear from some guys that aren't outfitters and and, uh, maybe just from um, everyday Joe, sorry about that, Phil, everyday Joe's um, perspective of hunting in Mexico, and, um, you know, quite honestly, sometimes uh, the everyday Joe, quote unquote, um, is just as into it as some of the outfitter buddies that I know. So uh, hopefully you don't uh, take any disrespect from that, Phil, but uh, you kind of get where I'm going. I want to just talk to a quote unquote, a normal person about their uh, impressions and, and their experiences and their strategies in Mexico. And hopefully some of the listeners out there can relate. Phil, how you doing? I'm doing good, Jay. Thank you, and and no disrespect at all taken. Um, yeah, definitely a coos deer nut, and I don't know if there's any of us that are quite normal that are coos deer nuts, <laughs> but true. Uh, I'll do the best I can to give a, a good perspective. That's awesome. Phil, uh, first and foremost, uh, what line of work are you in? Uh, so when you're not coos deer hunting, uh, what, what are you doing? I'm a contractor, and I work for a large drilling company. Um, if it has anything to do with putting a hole in the ground, we do it everything from domestic water wells to oil and gas exploration. I'm currently the division manager for the U.S. on the underground side of things. So we do a lot of uh, gold, copper, nickel, zinc, and lead exploration underground. Gotcha. And does that uh, line of work have you traveling outside of Arizona quite a bit? It does. It does. I spend probably two weeks out of every month on the road, um, everywhere from northern Canada to southern Mexico and pretty much the U.S. covered from coast to coast. That's awesome. I know with copper and and um, some of the prices coming back, it sure seems like there's uh, renewed energy, as so, as, so to speak, in, in the drilling. Are you seeing that in, in you know your activities and such over the last... Uh, you know, six months, year, are you seeing things pick up? We are, and it's it's a great breath of fresh air that we're seeing because we've been in a downturn, actually, for the last about four and a half years. And over, you just about nailed it on the head. Over the last six months, we've seen investors really get excited with the future potential of the prices going up and, and staying up, more importantly. And then really after the last election, the presidential election, we've seen a lot of investors jump on um, projects that normally wouldn't be funded. And anytime that happens, it breathes a lot of energy as well as new funds into the drilling industry. Uh, not for just like myself that's an actual drilling contractor, but for the people who supply us. So our vendors are excited as well. And uh, it should be a really good, I'd say, at least next year. And we hope to sustain it into the long term as well. Awesome. Well, I wish you the best. Uh, the reason I want to talk to you today on the podcast, like we talked earlier, was I want to talk about Sonora, Mexico and uh, Dar and I just got back from our first trip down there. Usually we plan both of our hunts. We try and take two two groups of five. We try and plan them around the rut. Uh, this year, 
Uh, we had a couple of young guys uh, in, in high school and and um, their dads wanted to take them kind of during Christmas break. And, um, you know, it, it's a little difficult because we know that when the deer are not running on some of these ranches in Mexico, they can be tough because they're not moving around as much. And, you know, the deer are, you know, bedded most of the day. A lot of times they're nocturnal. These are my per- darnized perceptions. And, you know, this trip was uh, very similar in, in, in what we found. We found that, you know, within the first hour of light, uh, those deer were already starting to bed down and then throughout the day they would get up several times just to change positions and then bed back down and um, did not have a lot of activity. Uh, we were able to go five for five on bucks, but we really had to work at it. And we actually lost a day and a half kind of to, to rain and inclement weather. But um, uh, I want to I dive into your experiences in Mexico and maybe start off by saying, you know, when was your first trip to Sonora uh, for coos deer and was it a mountain or a desert ranch? And, and then maybe how it progressed over to where you're at now. Okay. Um, my first trip was probably nine, nine and a half years ago. Um, I actually met a couple fellow hunters on com, and I was interested in going down to Sonora as a do-it-yourself type hunt. Uh, you know, I, I just kind of wanted to get my feet wet and see what it was about. I'd heard great things, uh, not only from you, but from other outfitters that I know that have been down there and and they've always told me that you needed to go experience it for yourself. And I went ahead and arranged that. And I was fortunate enough to, like I said, meet a couple guys from Coos Whitetail that had some experience in going down. And it was a mountain ranch. Uh, we went down and actually scouted it in, I'd say, early November, if I remember correctly. It was very similar to what I'd been told. We didn't see much deer movement at all. Um, we did see a lot of deer early in the morning and late, you know, right before the sunset. I was amazed at how many deer were actually in that very small congested areas. And the mountain ranch that I first hunted was, was more of mesquite, ocotillo type vegetation and very few oaks. Uh, it seemed to produce a lot of deer numbers, but not necessarily high quality as far as trophy potential. Um, but it it was my first adventure down into Mexico, and I was very excited. We ended up hunting that ranch um, the first week of January, and I spent 10 days on it, and I feel that I just barely missed the rut. The The rut seemed to be really picking up towards the end of my hunt. I was fortunate enough to kill a what I consider a very nice buck, especially for my first one down in Mexico, uh, 108 and a half. Um, and after that, I've, I've been going just about every year since then. I've had a great opportunity to hunt not only mountain ranches, but also desert ranches. Um, two different types of hunting, as you well know. Um, the deer are tend to, on the mountain ranches, be more visible you're able to spot them a lot more and get up a high on a vantage point the desert ranch is not so much sometimes you might have one two glassable areas on the ranch and the rest of it might be rolling hills and flats but over the course of the years you know i've desert 
ranches for me and my experience have produced larger bucks or more of the higher quality of bucks than the mountain ranches, but the mountain ranches have produced more deer, period. They're very fun. They're exciting hunts. But as you mentioned just a little bit ago, when you don't hit that rut right, um, it, it can be pretty difficult and that you spend a lot of time glassing and picking apart the country and trying to dig them out of their beds because their activity level is just not there as when you hit that rut or even some of the pre-rut when they're moving around looking for those. For sure. I mean, you summed it up perfectly there. Um, and for those listeners that, that aren't coos deer nuts or maybe they're just starting out, uh, like Phil pointed out, uh, you know, there's there's mountain ranches, which I'm going to say are, you know, 4,000 feet and above. And then there's desert ranches, which I'm going to say are, you know, say 4,000 feet and below. And a lot of the desert ranches are down on the desert floor, hence the name the desert ranches. And they've just got these big cone knobs. And most of these desert ranches, a lot of them are big, big properties. They've got some big cone knobs. But it may be a mile or two or five between knobs. You may have some little intermittent rolling hills and such. Um, and it, it, for me, it gives the ch- a chance for those deer to not be easy prey to us hunters that are glassing across canyons and up on ridges and 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 you know having access to shoot them at you know three, four, five hundred yards. Some of the deer on those desert ranches, you may get up on a big cone knob and get out there and glass a deer at three miles away but as soon as you get down on the level with that deer uh you know they virtually become you know impossible to find um so that i would totally agree with you that you know historically uh deer out of the desert uh tend to be bigger um you see some giant trophies taken out of the desert flats and quite honestly a lot of big deer out of the desert get shot from guys high racking and, and mule deer hunting and just happen to happen to con, you know, across a big coos deer buck. Um, one of the things that I, Dar and I try and focus on guiding our hunters on mountain ranches. And one of the reasons why is because when you're taking a group of five guys, um, hunting mountain ranches is a lot more enjoyable, um, for a group and for the success of the hunters and phil i'll ask you about this in a minute but you know you could go down on a desert ranch and you could go maybe a day or two and not even see a deer in some on some ranches um one of the best deer well the best coos deer i ever killed was on a flats ranch down in a flats desert ranch down south of hermosillo and um you know the, the the big deer live out in those desert flats and this was no exception he was you know 133 and 6 eighths inch buck just a, a big non-typical i'm actually looking at him up here on my wall he's got forked eye guards he's got a little drop tine and you know just a big old buck um but the the challenge is taking guys that want to go down and experience mexico for us taking guys on mountain ranches where you have more opportunity one to see deer and two you have more opportunity to actually see them and then move in and make a stock um, makes for in my mind a better experience and better guiding Um, now the flats ranches in my opinion are perfect for the guys that have a lot of time 
you know, maybe 10 days, two weeks or even more or be or be able to go down for, you know, 10 days at a time and do multiple trips and set cameras and sit water. And 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 it takes a lot more patience and takes, you know, you have to be in exactly the right place at the right time uh, to, to even harvest a deer, nonetheless, uh, a big deer. Um, so I'm I'm curious i mean with all that being said we have killed some phenomenal bucks on mountain ranches um but it it, i will i will stipulate that if you had a lot of time um and and you didn't have too many guys hunting that you could year after year go on these desert flats ranches and probably shoot a big deer year after year after year your thoughts phil i i think that's exactly right and Something I'd like to add to that, I believe there's a little bit of a progression as a coos hunter, at least there has been for me, is you, you get to the point, I mean, it's still a thrill no matter what size the buck is that I see, but you get to a point where I'm okay with passing that 105-inch deer hoping for the 110, and I'm okay passing that 110 hoping for the 115. And even though it's not always about the score, it could be about the character but the reason why I go to Mexico is because I'm looking for that monster. It took me a long time to get in my personal hunting career to be able to pass that 110 to hold out for that 115. And frankly, I had a lot of friends hunting desert ranches well before I ever was introduced to them. And I was so reluctant to go down to the desert ranches because just like you said, you might hunt for two days, and you might not ever see a deer. You might you might go that stretch and, and catch it where the weather's 80, 85 degrees and the deer aren't moving, and you really have no opportunity other than sitting water. And that's fine, but it took me a long time in my personal hunting career to be able to be okay with that. As you said, it's it's on the mountain ranches and i agree with this it's typically easier and it's still a hunt and it can be very hard but it's typically easier to spot a buck and be able to move in on that buck and normally you get to see those you know 20 and above type days where you're seeing 20 or more deer a day and sometimes in the desert ranches you might not ever see one in two or three days now the other thing that kept me from going ahead and jumping into the desert ranches is yourself and Dar and some of my other friends that I know who do guide down there, they were pulling out those phenomenal bucks, and every once in a while they'd bring in that 125, 130-inch monster. And my hope was that I would be doing that. And, you know, it, it got to the point where I was like, you know what, I need to up my odds because time is a commodity to me, and even take a lot of time off work, fortunately I'm able to, I wasn't getting the result that I wanted, and, and maybe it because I wasn't hunting the right ranch. I firmly believe I was in certain situations, but I just I needed to increase my odds, and that's why I went to the desert ranches. But wholeheartedly, if I was taking other hunters down there, I would be focusing more on the mountain ranches just for the same reasons that you said. Um, the desert ranches, what we found uh, with a lot of the guys that I hunt with, it, it's more of taking inventory by trail cameras other than using your optics and letting them do the work because it's just the terrain lends itself to the tanks, you know, to sit in water because 
as you mentioned, you might not be able to hunt that country unless you high rack it or sit water. And that's the thing with the desert ranches. But I also believe that's part of the reason why they tend to produce larger deer is I think the predators have a harder time killing those larger age class bucks um, for the same reason we do is because it's harder to see them. It's harder to put a stock on them when you're down at their level. You can't get on the bluff and wait for them to come through at a pinch point. Um, you, you can't stalk around the top of a ridge or over, over you know, a, a bluff or a cliff to be able to get the vantage point you need to get onto that buck. And I think that's part of the reason that we see these bigger, higher class bucks coming out of the desert ranches. And that's the same reason why I'm down there hunting them. And it does take time and it, it takes a large investment not only for the time during the hunt, but we've been going down uh, typically after Thanksgiving and setting anywhere between 50 and 100 trail cameras to basically up our odds and and increase our chances of killing that monster buck that we want to kill, that we all dream about. And, And that's why we're spending the time and the effort on some of these desert ranches that you just wouldn't be able to hunt otherwise. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think, too, another reason why those deer are bigger is in a lot of those ranches, the density isn't as high. So there's not as much competition for for food and that they can get really good nutrients uh, and such. And it, it, it always seems that the real high density ranches in general, whether mountain ranch or, or desert, they don't have as big of deer. But if you get into that low to medium density, it, it's been our experience that a lot of times you can find some of those great bucks that we're all looking for. And so it's always a happy medium for Darren and I when we're going down in the off season and scouting ranches and trying to figure out which ranches we're going to hunt for the following year. You know, if we go and see a bunch of deer, sometimes that throws us off and we're like, well, this is probably going to be a high density ranch. And, you know, you may see 25 bucks in a day, but you might not see one buck over a hundred and you might you know, hunt a week in January during the prime of the rut and, you know, the best bucks you kill might be 100, 102 inches, you know, and, and a bunch of deer in the 90s. So, you know, for us, it's always finding that happy medium of, of, of you know, not too high of density, but enough density to, you know, to pique our interest. And then a, a, another thing I think is you have to have size. You've got to have properties that have size. If, if they're too small, Um, it may work if they're fresh and they haven't been hunted, you know, ever, or haven't been hunted for years. Um, there may be, you know, two or three bucks of interest that are, that are really good, but you have to have size and have to have area, um, in order for those, you know, when we're taking a group of five guys, you know, we want all five guys to harvest nice bucks. Um, so it's a challenge, um, dealing with, uh, you know, trying to lease properties down there. Cause you know, a lot of times the ranchers will get say, you know, 10 deer on their UMA registration, uh, which is through the, the government, uh, or even 20 deer. And you know that, man, y- you can't shoot more than four or five deer a year off of that place to maintain the quality of deer that us Americans going down there are looking for. So, um, curious, your thoughts um, on, well, I, I want to shift gears a little bit. How is the antler growth looking this year 
for you guys in Sonora compared to other years? Is it average, above average, or below? Well, from what we've seen so far um, on on both of our trips, I, I made a trip down there after Thanksgiving um, and with a, a hunting partner of mine, and then actually he went down between Christmas and New Year's and checked a lot of the cameras for us and, and spent a little time hunting. And both from what we saw with our binoculars and our optics, as well as what the trail cameras are showing, is this is going to turn out to be one of the best years we've seen in probably the last four or five years. We have bucks that we have history with, um, both from when they first started hunting the ranches that we are, as well as now that I'm getting involved with it, that we have on trail camera as well as we've laid eyes on, and, and they've really jumped up. Now, part of that's due to what we believe is the conditions are right. Um, it seemed that even though all of the cowboys we talked to uh, this year said they had very little rain compared to years previous, the, the vegetation and the grasses, and the new green growth um, has shown that they had the rain at the right times. And what we've come to find out is the cowboys typically want the larger rains that's going to fill up their tanks or and add water to you know the long term throughout the year, which means it might not be the same impression that we have of good rains being the slow drip, steady drizzles that are great for the vegetation. When we first went down this year, we said it's probably the most lush we've seen in, like I said, four or five years, and it got our hopes up very fast. And those hopes are now turning into high expectations for this season because the trail cameras are showing and what we've been able to see with our own eyes is that the deer put on a lot of inches. They've added mass, they've added time length, and even some of them are, are adding some width that we didn't expect to be that way. Um, it, it's it's really exciting and we're looking forward to it uh, probably more so than ever this year. We have more bucks on camera that we have on our hit list than we've ever we've ever had before that you know you've always we've always had the one two three four that okay this is the top of the list this is a shooter the first day the first minute when we get out there and then we were always hoping that something else would show up or you know a, a buck that's got some cool character we'd want to take it but this year there's no arguments. I mean, it's it's just out there that the bucks on our hit list are big, mature deer, and there's more of them this year than we've ever seen before in the past. And it, like I said, it's very exciting. I, I can't wait to get down there at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's awesome. When do you head down for your first actual trip of hunting? Um, we're going to go down and cross the border the morning of the 16th of January. Um, for a couple of different reasons, we, we try and work the moon phase as best we can, but historically what we found is sometime in that third week in January, the rut's pretty much going to be happening. The weather might still be warm. Um, you know, the conditions might not be ideal, but that's if you, if you had to pick a week, and from what I've found personally, if I pick that week, I'm pretty much guaranteeing I'm going to hit part of the rut. It might be the latter end or it might be the, you know, the beginning of it. But most of the time, if you hit that third week, 
second, and you know, towards the end of the second, the third week, you're going to be hitting the rut, and, and that's what we like to hunt. Even on the desert ranches, not so much because it makes them more visible for glassing, but we've we've tend to find, and what I believe is that when they are more active during that rut, they're leaving water more. Um, they they have to make themselves go into that tank to not only replenish what they've burned up chousing those but also to cool off and and they also start using it as a as a social area where they can check those and pick up different scents and from what we've seen both on the trail cameras as well as as sitting water is we need that rut to kick in to have a higher success as sitting water and make those bucks come in more during the day and opposed to being nocturnal and things like that. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with with a couple of functions that are one they they are chasing does so they need water to replenish their bodies, uh, but two uh, the does tend to hit the water a lot, and so a lot of times those bucks are hitting those waters as more of where the girls at and checking on them and and checking their scent and and you know making uh, scrapes and scent lines and and what have you. Um, uh, you know, licking branches and all that kind of stuff near those tanks because then other deer come by and check them. Uh, are, will you guys primarily be hunting sitting ground blinds with a rifle or will you be sitting with your bows? And what what kind of strategy as far as, you know, are you sitting sun up to sun down? Um, and then the next question, uh, sorry to bombard you, but um, what what are your peak hours that you're seeing the most movement when you're there, say the 16th through the, the end of the end of January, what are your peak hours of movement? Okay. Uh, the, the, to address the first question, we'll have a combination of both um, rifle and bow. Uh, this year, especially it'll be more on the rifle side of things. Um, we, we typically try and get a group of guys to go down. It's kind of that happy medium you were talking about. You don't want too many to basically have competition amongst yourselves, but you want enough to be able to secure enough property and ranches to spread the cost of the tags out that you have a good area to hunt. So we have guys from all over their coos career, as you call it, from fairly new beginners to um, myself and my hunting partner who have you know been hunting coos deer most of our adult life as well as been to our teams. But that that's the reason why we have a mix of both bow and rifle um, primarily this year will be rifle and for a couple of different reasons the water level and a lot of the tanks are lower than it's been in the past and that tends to make the shot distances longer from where we're setting up blinds and the reason being is we try and get the, the blinds back along the brush line as best we can and as I said earlier, the Cowboys said they just didn't get the range, and by that, they didn't get the runoffs to fill up a lot of the tanks. So the, the water level in the tanks are down quite a bit, and the quality of bucks that are on our hit list this year, we don't want to take an opportunity of having the bow in the blind and passing up that buck if, if he presents a shot that you wouldn't be able to use with the bow. And right now, even for myself, I'm you know I'm looking for that, that giant buck and whether it be with a rifle or a bow i don't really care at this point it's about getting him down on the ground um to address some of the other questions you asked there typically we'll we'll get in the blind fairly early not necessarily before dark um and the main reason is we see prime time usually 
during that time of year to be anywhere between 9 and 2 o'clock, um, with the most activity around 10 o'clock to noon. Um, those seem to be your two highest traffic times in, the, in and out of the water. We'll get in certain situations when we're pinpointing one particular buck, and he might be the odd character that comes in at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. But for the most part, we'll get in the blind typically around daylight, and we'll get out of the blind anywhere from noon to 2 o'clock. If it's been very slow that day, we'll climb out at noon, and we'll typically go back and check as many cameras as we can and pull the memory cards on it and then spend the afternoon glassing ridges or, or going through pictures to see where our best opportunity will be for the next day. Um, we're fortunate to be able to go down for nine, ten times, you know, ten days at a time where we, we have that luxury to be able to do that. If we were going down for a four or five day hunt, it probably wouldn't be that way. We'd probably pick a tank that a big buck on our hit list is coming in and set it from daylight to dark, but you're going to have a, uh, quite a bit of non-productive time given what we've learned both from the trail cameras as well as setting the tanks. Uh, you know, your, your magic couple hours is between 10 and 10 and noon. Um, we try and set the blinds, like I said, a little bit after daylight till two at the latest normally. Um, but usually between, 9, 10, 11, 12 is when everything's hitting the water. You know, that makes up uh, perfect sense. In my mind, uh, deer, from a safety standpoint, they're not going to bed down near the water hole. And so a lot of times they're kind of bedded up away from water, um, in my opinion. And then they, you know, are feeding and what have you. And then before they're going to lay down for the day, um, a lot of times I think you're saying, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 o'clock is the prime time. I think they do their feeding while it's cool. They go ahead and head down to the water, uh, get a drink, and then they go and lay up. And, uh, you know, a lot of places where you're um, you're hunting, you know, you're, you're way south in Sonora, and your, you know, your temperatures in the day, even in, in late January, could be in the 90s. And so, you know, whereas a lot of hunting that we do is kind of in northern Sonora, um, where, you know, your temperatures are a lot cooler. I remember the, that the uh, when I killed my biggest buck down there south of Hermosillo, you know, it was in the 90 degrees on the thermometer on my truck in the afternoons when we would um, go out to glass for the afternoons. And um those deer down on those desert ranches, they they do act a little bit different than some of these deer on the mountain ranches, for, just because of temperature alone, I believe. Um, but I think it makes sense, though, also that you know that the, the deer are traveling to the water and they're not bedded near the water usually, and so it takes them, you know an hour or two or three to finally work their way down to the water and then get their drink, chase the does, you know, smell around for does and then, you know, head back to their bedding um, and then bed up, you know, from that noon to, you know, th three, four, five o'clock or even sometimes right before dark, depending on the temperature. I, I agree with that for sure. And, you know, even earlier on when I was hunting Sonora quite a bit, we were, we were hunting more 
um, towards Magdalena, um, closer to Ala Prieta a couple of years. And I was seeing, especially on those ranches, that the temperature was cool. I mean, we I remember waking up a number of mornings where we had a skiff of snow on the ground. And your picture of the ideal rut, you know, you're like, oh, man, this is great. This is exciting. This is what the deer needed. The temperatures are cool. They're going to be moving all day. And as you go further south, that's just not the case because, like you said, sometimes we have temperatures of 90 degrees. I mean, we're getting sunburned. It's hot. You don't want to move. The deer don't want to move. And the other thing, you nailed it, and I, I, I firmly believe that, that it's taking them longer to get up from their bedding areas and they're feeding and they're not in a big hurry, especially if the bucks are chousing the does around. They're going to do their thing and eventually make their way into water. I, I really believe that has a large part to do with that time frame that I was talking about. And I think the other thing is, and, and you mentioned it just a little bit, is I think that's when they're comfortable. They can see well. Typically, the thermals have, have settled down, and they can smell well. Um, normally, the wind's not really gusting, and they feel more secure, you know, coming into a water tank where I firmly believe they feel fairly vulnerable and and they're hesitant to just come you know walking in at any time and i think that's also why they typically don't bed right next to it is they feel that they're a little bit um vulnerable near that water as predators might congregate there they're using the same water source so typically they're going to feed away from it before they bed and and even when the bucks are are pretty much nocturnal that we're seeing when the temperatures are really hot earlier on when we start going down there is typically the deer won't be right at daylight or right at dark on the camera. Normally they're two, three hours into the night and sometimes, you know, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, same way with four, three, four o'clock in the morning. And I think it's the same reason is they're moving, you know, a ways away from the water before they start bedding and before they actually get up and feed. That's how long it takes to get there. For sure. Um, Phil, I want to take a quick break here and mention the sponsors of this podcast. Uh, Go Hunt Insider has just released their Arizona draw odds, and with the new non-resident uh, change, uh, with the with the max bonus points, and and now for non-residents being able to to draw on the random pool, they've just released the Go Hunt Insider draw result or draw odds for Arizona, and I want to. Um, tell people that you know this resource go hunt insider is incredible and if they use the j scott promo code when signing up for an insider membership they get a 50 dollars kuyu gift certificate uh, automatically emailed to them and it also puts them in a drawing for a lot of great hunts and gear that go hunt gives away also, the outdoorsman's here in Phoenix, uh, the, the Optics Authority is where I get all of my binoculars and spotting scopes, and they've got a lot of great hunting gear. If, if uh, the listeners use the J. Scott promo code when they call or online at outdoorsmans.com, uh, they're going to get a 10% discount. They can also call at 1-800-291-8065. Um, the other sponsor is Phonescope.com, and Phonescope does... Uh, the best digiscoping adapters for your phones that I've seen out there. And they basically can adapt any uh, phone to any spotting scope or binocular. And if you use the JSCOT16 promo code, uh, you get a 10% discount. 
uh, when ordering online at phonescope.com. And then Real Game Calls uh, makes the Elk Reel and Drew Rouse there and his crew and Gypsum have just recently released uh, the Buck Reel and they are just releasing the Turkey. I believe they're calling it the Turkey Reel um, for the upcoming spring season. And um, I've had a bunch of feedback from guys uh, using the Elk Reel uh, which is a little wood call that makes some real nasally authentic sounds. Uh, and you get 20% off if you use the J. Scott promo code. And I want to thank all these sponsors for their support. Phil, back to um, what you were saying. It reminds me, the first time I ever went to Mexico was um, close to 20 years ago. And I actually hunted a ranch uh, way south, um, south of Hermosillo, and I distinctly remember uh, it being hot and dry, and there being basically two water holes on this whole property, and all the cattle, all the deer, all the coyotes, all the bobcats, basically that's where they got their water, and I was up on one of the cone knobs on this ranch, and literally witnessing cattle walking three to four miles just to go down and get a drink of water. And, and I kept thinking in the back of my mind, well, surely the deer aren't going to travel that far to go get water. Well, absolutely they are. They have no other choice. Um, and it, it made me realize that it's just everyday life for them. If they have to walk two or three miles or a mile or five miles to get a drink, that's what they're going to do. And I think they just get used to it. When you're looking at desert ranches, how does the amount of water holes on the property play into whether that's a ranch that you want to lease or not from a from an availability standpoint of you know, oh, it's got too much water. We don't have enough guys to man all these different water holes. What's your thoughts on that? That's a, a really good question, and it's one we've we've had, my hunting partners and I have had several discussions about because there's a couple different trains of thought here, and, and one is you want as much water as possible so the deer don't have to work as hard, so there are potentially more deer in the area. But like you said, it could also lead to problems because it's not congregating the deer at one certain tank or one certain water source. It's giving them so many options that it's virtually impossible to hunt successfully. You have to just, like winning the lottery, pick the right tank at the right time. But on the other hand, what I've found more seems to be more important to look for is water that's going to be sustainable to you to the deer when you're going to be in the area hunting. Um, you don't want a ranch that is going to have a bunch of water, say, in the monsoons, but by the time you get there in December, January, those water sources are going to be dry, and those deer are then traveling to a neighboring ranch that you don't have. That can be as much, if not more, detrimental than not having any water because, I've witnessed the same thing, that the deer will travel as far as they need to to get water as long as they have the feed and the cover and the areas they feel comfortable in somewhere else. And that's a, it's a hard thing to look at. You want water 
you don't want too much water, but you want water that's sustainable. And by that, I mean water that's going to be there when you plan to be there hunting. Um, I've, I've seen a number of times where I go down and scout a ranch early, could be in the summer, even the spring, and it's got pretty good water sources and a lot of deer. And then you go back when it's time to hunt, and those water sources are dried up. And those deer might still be there certain times, but they're traveling to the neighboring ranch to get water. So it, it drastically limits your ability to harvest that deer. And what we try and look for is not only sustainable water, but good cover and feed where those deer are going to try and more than likely live on that ranch year-round and where they won't be migrant moving as the season changes for water or feed. And and it's very important, especially in the desert ranches, not only for your hunting ability, but also for your, your scouting ability. We, we use trail cameras almost exclusively in our scouting to get not only the quality of bucks, but the amount of bucks as well as the amount of does so we have an idea on what the deer activity will be when that rut happens and and that's what we really try and look for are water sources that are going to be there year-round but also water sources just enough to sustain the deer that you want to hunt but not too many where it's virtually impossible now that also brings up another point that we found is you can have a lot of water in the forms of, say, the, the cement drinkers or the windmills that the deer might not, not necessarily be using unless they have to. That's great water to sustain them during the dry times, but typically what we found is the deer prefer to use a dirt tank over a drink if possible and available. So that's another thing we look at is to make sure that there's enough dirt tanks that the deer feel comfortable that we have a chance of harvesting them at. One of the things why I think the deer like those dirt tanks better is I think like you hit the nail on the head with the water this year's low and a lot of these dirt tanks are big, big tanks. And so they actually have open areas. They come out of the brush, they, they get into the open area and they're walking in the open down to the water and they have the ability to hear, to use all of their senses of sight, you know, smell out where they're, you know, when you have a real tight spot of water, I think sometimes they're a little leery that, you know, is a lion up in a tree, is a coyote waiting behind the bush to grab them. And, and so I think one of the challenges for you guys that you've seen is, um, you know, certainly not as much with a rifle, but with your bow, your placement of your your um, your um, blinds is is a challenge because a lot of times they want to come out into the open and a lot of times in those tanks they may walk for 40 or 50 yards in the open which when the water's really filled up in the monsoon season it may be all the way full but as it gets to where it is now which is some of the drier times uh you know it may recede 40 or 50 yards and they've got a nice open lane to go down and get a get a drink i think the other thing that you've seen and maybe you can answer on your trail cams is it creates like a little rutting pocket and i've seen deer up glassing up on knobs and looking down at tanks and find those you know those sand sand traps and stuff where the you know the on the bottom side of the tank where the spillways and stuff where it creates a nice open spot actually for those does to chase those uh, or excuse me those bucks to chase those does around uh, for sure, and and we have seen it on our trail cameras as well as seen it sit in the blinds, you know, sit in the tanks during the rut is 
like you said, it, it makes a nice, smooth, typically an open area where I think they feel comfortable, but also where the bucks have an opportunity to interact and, and check more than one doe at one time. And once they find that right one, you know, it's a great spot for them to basically chouse them and move them around without putting themselves in danger typically because as you said it gives them that 40 50 yard opening sometimes more some of these tanks are huge and they have you know a hundred yard basically flat where they can mess around and they don't have that fear of anything sneaking up on them or waiting behind the tree for them and i think it puts the does more at ease than the bucks because the bucks have one thing on their mind but the does feel comfortable and i think it allows them to spend more time there, which then is going to draw the bucks. And we've definitely seen that on the trail cameras. We've actually seen it starting already this year where we've got a number of, of tanks and pictures where the bucks are in there checking the does, and the does are actually staying there for longer periods of time than normal. Yeah, for sure. And I think sometimes in those tanks where the water recedes, you know, sometimes you can get some of that, you know, if you get any kind of little light shower, sometimes you get, you know, little little fresh green grass popping up and such um, that, that, you know, we may look at and not see much, but they may look at it as a, you know, great meal there. And so they spend a little bit longer there and they're kind of, as the rut, you know, progresses, I think it becomes more of a social place and a social gathering. But I think, as you know, Phil, and for the listeners out there that maybe are, are newer coos deer are keen and their 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 senses are always on alert because they're you know 24 7 they're 365 they are being chased and you know everything is after them you know from coyotes to bobcats to to to, to lions to humans um there there's no nothing out there that's really their friend um everything out there is trying to kill them it's interesting that you you bring some of that up and especially the the new green growth what we found is we'll go to these tanks um you know year after year and especially when we're hunting new ranches and check them and some of the tanks might be dry but what we found is even the tanks that are dry as long as there's another water source fairly close those deer continue to come to those tanks and it's especially for the green grass, the new growth, because the tank's fertile. It's it's had a lot of sediments in it and different soils that have washed down, you know, through the washes and you get a little shower and that green grass pops up instantly. And we have found a lot of deer and some really good bucks that are feeding at those dry tanks. And it's like a almost like a buffet, you know, that you and I would think of it as because the deer are coming in there, they're interacting, they're getting the nutrients they need, and it's in a spot that they feel comfortable at already. So it's been really interesting to see that. And just because you put roll up and the tank's dry, if it's got that feed there and there's a water source fairly close, don't don't forget about it because we've, we've seen that a lot lately that the deer still are using it, and they're using it more for groceries than they are for water, so. It's a for it's sure. interesting thing you said that. For sure, let's um let's hit on the quality of bucks that you're looking at. And the first question I would ask you, in your opinion, do trail cameras make the deer look bigger or smaller? Talking about their antlers, in your opinion. That's that's tough because 
you can look at a, a trail camera picture and add, I think, easily five to ten inches on a normal average hundred inch deer just by the angle. And we've learned, and because you, the worst thing you can have happen is ground shrinkage, and that's that's something no one wants. So what we've learned is you can't just take one picture and make a solid judgment on the quality of deer. You have to have multiple angles, backside. And another thing we found is night. Sometimes the, the flash of the trail camera can wash actually the time length out or wash the mass out. But at other angles, due to the way that the shadows fall, it makes the deer look larger. So you can't go and you have to be very hesitant off of uh, judging a deer that you might only have one or two pictures of. What we've been fortunate enough to do with my hunting partners and I have gather enough trail cameras that we can basically cover a tank up. So usually, if we're targeting a specific buck or a buck that piques our interest comes in, we'll have multiple angles at him so that we can really pick that deer apart and decide, hey, that's one we want to put on the hit list this year. Hey, that's a younger deer that we think has potential to grow in for next year. And that's part of the reason why we put so many trail cameras out is that you don't have to just use one or two angles to judge the deer because it can be very deceiving. Um, and and typically, if it's something that you think's right on the verge and, and you think it might not be there yet, it's not going to be. And you have to be, I, I wouldn't say you, you'd want to underjudge them, but you, you have to make your lengths and your, your mass measurements on the lower end just so it's not a surprise when you first lay eyes on that deer. Typically, we'll go through all the cameras and we'll know what deer we want to harvest going into the hunt, and it makes it good for guys that might not have as much experience in their coos deer hunting, so that way they can have a good idea that as soon as that buck steps out, oh, that's the buck I've been looking at, that's the one I'm waiting for, I'm going to go ahead and take him. And that way there's no surprises. There are, typically, they're on the good end. Yeah. I, I, I'm one that, you know, darn, I, I think that, you know, elk, deer, sheep, it seems like the cameras in my mind shrink them up. It seems like when you actually get the antlers in your hand, I think that rule of thumb, you're saying five, maybe even 10 inches on some deer. Uh, to me, I see trail camera pictures of coos deer and over and over and over in most circumstances, they look smaller, uh, like like photos of sheep, uh, they look smaller. Like photos of elk, it seems like they look smaller, and then um, you actually get the antlers in your hand, and and they're they're bigger. Um, and and I've seen coos deer photos on trail cameras before where I thought, ah, that's not a very good deer, and then you see them in person, you're like, oh my goodness, that's that's a that's a really nice deer. You know, he's he's eight or ten inches bigger than I even thought he was. Um, so it's it's interesting to hear your your thoughts on that. Um, quality of bucks, uh, if you have like what kind of buck, if first day comes in would you shoot this year? I mean, are you at 110? Are you at 115? Are you at 120? Like what, what, what would do it for you first day, you know, first morning? Going into the hunt, um, you know, early on when we were getting our tags squared away and our deposits and everything, I was 
I had the bar set at one ten, and I always I always leave a loophole because that one buck might come in that has a crazy drop tying, and he only he might be ninety nine inches, you know, but he's got a five inch dropper. So I always leave that loophole that if he has the look, that's going to be the one. But yeah. I went into the hunt saying one ten. But after we spent some time down there and really started looking at the deer we have this year, my goal is right around the 115 mark. Um, there's a couple bucks that, that just exploded this year that have shown up that are just giants in my mind, you know, and what I consider a giant that are pushing that 120, 125 range. And so that ups the bar and for my standards. So... There's a couple specific bucks that I'm targeting that if they come in first minute, first day, I'm dropping a hammer on, and that's the 112, 115 buck. I'm not going to say I'm going to pass him up for the 125 buck, um, but that's the quality of deer that we're looking at this year. And I'd be very surprised that unless someone just gets impatient, you know, out of six tags, seven tags, that someone's going to bring home anything under 105 110 that's awesome that's fantastic well it's going to be great to um follow on instagram i encourage um i encourage the listeners to uh find phil on instagram uh phil what is your handle it's kramer hunts right? that is correct yes yeah kramer with the c hunts on instagram and uh follow phil's success and you know, we could probably do 10 other podcasts on this exact subject, um, but I know you're busy and we covered quite a bit of ground today. Um, so I want to thank you for coming on and spending time with us as our guest here and uh, giving us some of your knowledge and uh, just wish you the best of success and uh, safe travels down there. And um, interesting, I heard the government when we were down there on our last trip uh, doubled the price of gas. As you know, they they own the Pemex, they own, you know, all of the gas in Mexico. So um, your fuel cost just went up a little bit, but uh, that's all part of the game, right? That it is. That it is. I've been following that fairly closely. Um, you can't really control what you're going to have to pay for it. You just have to be prepared for it. But more importantly, I didn't want to get down there and run out. So uh, I've been trying yeah. to keep an eye on it. For sure. Well, um, wish you the best of success down there. And, um, I've had one of your hunting partners on, Tim Maddock, on this uh, podcast before and got real good feedback. And uh, it's uh, great talking to a fellow coos nut. And so we'll probably have to check in with you after the season and and uh, do a recap and, and see how things went. And I know it's it's tough hunting on those desert ranches, um, uh, but the reward is, is big. And I uh, hope you and your 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 buddies uh, do really well down there. Well, I appreciate it, Jay. It's It's been a pleasure and an honor to be on your podcast. I've listened to a ton of them, and it's always great feedback, and I enjoy everybody's different views on different opinions and subjects, and it's always um, things that are typically near and dear to my heart. That's hunting, and uh, I, I look forward to the future, and good luck to you and Dar and your clients down there. It should be a great year. Yeah, and, and um, before we go, I uh, I remember, um, didn't you take your daughter uh, Osceola turkey hunting last year or the year before, and she got an Osceola? I did. Actually, um, she's one away from her Royal Slam in turkey hunting at the age of 15. 
Um, I took her. To <laughs> <laughs> what does she need? She needs an Eastern. What is she? Ironically, um, she needs a- the most okay. populated turkey there is. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, she she um, I drew a Goulds tag a few years ago and I signed it over to her, and um, she took her Goulds here in Arizona and she was fortunate enough to take a Merriam's as well, the same year up on the Wallapai Reservation and that started her turkey hunting bug. So she came up to me all on her own. She said, Dad, I'd like to try for the Royal Slam before I'm 18. So I knew a couple people over in Florida and called them up and we booked a hunt and we flew down there and she took her first Osceola and then I know a few people in Texas and got them involved and we went over there and she took a Rio so with a little luck she'll complete her Royal Slam of Turkey hunting in Missouri this spring. That's awesome. I can't wait to see um, uh, her successes on that and kudos for you for uh making those opportunities available for her and and it's just awesome that she she loves turkey hunting and and wants to wants to achieve those um high goals of getting the royal slam before she's 18 so that that that's that's really really cool and um i just remember following that story and you made a video and uh, it was just real enjoyable so hats off to you for that and and uh, getting the youngsters out there involved and um so yeah buddy take care god bless and uh, thanks for spending time with us here uh, thank you jay it's much appreciated i enjoyed it